suitcases stuffed with fear, clothes smelling of disappointment, shoes for amputated feet, pictures of a family that no longer exists, faces thin except for their fury, eyes spouting dry salt, mouths without throats screaming, throats cut out and left behind, ears that know only the music of funerals and the sound of death. Death has two sounds. The first is explosions, screaming and the like. The second, silence. Silence is the sound of death intensified. Eyes that only see destruction, worlds no longer there, blood more than air, and air shot through with the ashes of burnt bodies. The tent is waiting, the tent that is judgment day. Only a few go to tents that are less deadly. The rest go to tents of hell. Angels circle them wearing uniforms with blue logos, and God, as usual, does not show up. There are no rivers here except those hung in the memory of the massacre, the Huri's feast on dirt. Children circle, begging for water. The sand the children used to love turned into burning embers and ice. That was an excerpt from Rami al-Ashik's Ever Since I Did Not Die, read to you by my co-host, Marsha Linksqueli. I'm Ursula Lindsay, and this is episode 76 of the Bulak podcast. Um, recorded as usual between Amman, where I am, and Rabat, where Marsha is. Uh, and we'll be talking about several books today, uh, but as I said, we're starting um, with uh, Al Ashik's book, um, which is out from uh, Seagull Press, translated by Isis Nusayer and edited by Levy Thompson. That's a pretty hellish beginning, and it is the beginning of the book, more or less, right? Yeah, that that's straight from the beginning. It 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 begins with the yes, these incredibly compressed scenes of uh, violence, horror, and you know, re- and woven together with religious imagery, and of course, you know, uniforms with blue logos and and the hu- sort of human figures of displacement as well. And um, Alashik is a. Palestinian Syrian writer, and he grew up in the Yarmouk district of Damascus, which is a an area of Damascus that started out as a Palestinian refugee camp, and um, was then a participant in the Arab Spring in Syria. Uh, went to prison for it. Uh, was then displaced again to Jordan. Actually, one of the reasons I was first caught my attention, the description of the book is that it said that he had lived several years in Jordan under an assumed identity. Then I happened to be here in Amman and I was curious about, you know, that experience that he had. Um, and, uh, and then he won a literary fellowship and he now lives in Germany. Yes. And you've spoken to him before, right? I spoke to him recently um, for part of a podcast series that will be published soon, I think, for Literature Across Frontiers. Um, I talked to a number of, of Syrian authors. Um, Rami was the, the last of, of the series. And I, I mean, we, we had a lovely discussion. I was just re-listening to it um, before before this. Although you know the the covid period in particular has been ex- exceptionally hard on him and generally being you know a 
you know, in quotes, refugee writer, I think has been also very hard on him. And he lives in Berlin. Is that right? I'm pretty sure he he lives in Berlin. Um, you know, of course, we did everything over right. <laughs> Zencaster and Zoom. Uh, so, I mean, I think I read that. I mean, that would make sense. Berlin having become sort of a, a capital of, of Arab culture and partly due to the Syrian refugee crisis and, and how many uh, uh, artists and writers from Syria and other Arab countries have, have, have ended up there and, and settled there now. Um, and, and his book does trace, um, I mean, all the way from Yarmouk through the time in Jordan, through his time in Germany, his, I mean, trace, it's not a linear narrative, but it includes, uh, sections or fragments that are situated in all these different countries that he's passed through and settled in. Right. And yes. And different relationships with people who he's had in different places. I, I found myself really uh, oddly moved by this, the, the the section about the bridge and the lock and key. And I always find this so corny, this the stupid locks that people put on bridges. Sorry to all the romantic people out there. But um, but the way, the, the lens through which he made me see this, the heaviness of the bridge and the locks and the keys thrown away. Um, it, as he, as he's sort of seeing it for the first time, um, I found really moving. Yeah, I had the same reaction in the sense that um, it was sort of interesting to see what's basically a really corny phenomenon viewed from <laughs> fresh eyes, like reinvested with sort of poetry and wonder when it's been kind of you know, leached out of it by it becoming such a stereotypical touristy thing to do. Um, you know, these couples who, for anybody who doesn't know, I feel like everybody does, you know, uh, you, you write your names on a little locket and then you close it on the side of a bridge. And there's one in Paris that I'm very familiar with, but he was talking about a different city and then you throw the key into some pile of keys in the river. Now right. it's right underneath. Right. right. That must be polluting the river. I don't know. I also liked the sections where he just the, talks about his 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 uh, crushes or his lovers, or there there's some very beautifully written sections um, that are more uh, sort of love poetry or writing. It's not he is a poet. This book is not poetry exactly. They're sort of very short texts. Um, I think he describes it in the beginning as, uh, I gathered these texts like someone collecting body parts. Mm. Here are the pieces of my body haphazardly brought together in a paper bag. Um, and there is this, so there's like mini chapters and, uh, they have the sort of density and evocativeness of poetry, but they're, they are prose. I find them to be more dense than his poetry, uh, actually, as though sort of um, pressed together under extreme tension and force, these small prose pieces. Uh, so I don't know what, I probably would call them poetry, but maybe I'd, maybe I'd call anything non-narrative poetry. 
but yes, I also was really moved by the romantic sections, which are sometimes anti-romantic relationships that he he finds himself in and out of uh, throughout his his sort of journeys. Yeah, there is something like consoling and and redeeming about having the sections where the the narrator experiences love and experiences joy, especially when there are these other passages that are so incredibly like dark and and full of, of violence and despair. Um, and- yeah, I thought Isis uh, or Isis uh, Nusser, the, the translator, had um, – and some interesting reflections in her introduction, something, you know, about how he uses love and the female uh, to embody certain things in the tradition, in the sort of poetic tradition, but also is pushing against them sort of simultaneously. Um, that, you know, the uh, a woman is, is freedom or relief is... is um, uh, you know, sort of a personal liberation, but also he's he's pushing against those metaphors and tropes at the same time. Where a woman embodies the nation still. Right, and right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like you said, it's not, it's not a romantic vision of things. It's also very explicitly a sort of anti-heroic vision of things. Right, like he, uh, right. He both, several times mentions that he's not a hero. Uh, right, both I think as a as a as a former revolutionary and a former refugee in all in in those in those different roles. Like the thing that he says served him the best was his fear. Not yes, that in that final piece. Yes, right. Is that from the last one? That is why I yeah. did not die. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I think, so there's a rejection, you know, of a lot of mythology. There's a disillusionment as you can expect after barely making it through out from under an incredibly brutal authoritarian regime. And then, you know, through all the, I think, disregard and danger of being a refugee, a person who is supposed to be protected, but isn't so often not. Right. Um, And I think also it's a book about also the experience of like reinventing yourself as you have to, like your identity and who you are. I mean, leaving so much behind and, and. Right. And what is your relationship to that place that you left behind? And to the people and to memories, mm-hmm. um, uh, there's this question of whether you just want to forget a lot of things, you know, whether memory is a burden. Um, um, there's there's death both on the actual level of having seen so much death and then there's the, you know, kind of death of who you, even when you survive the death of who you were back then and, um, you know, having to make these breaks. 
Right. So one of the things that he, Rami told me in, in this, uh, and during our discussion was that he, he looks back on his the poetry he wrote before. So he he published five collections before he was thirty, and so some of it he looks back on, and or he said maybe most of it he looks back on, and he he's he's not happy with it. But that it all went to also building who he is. Um, I don't know. I thought that he he had such a fraught relationship with his poetry especially after being a writer in exile, because there was, you know, he said the idea that they were welcoming you as a writer in exile, wanting to be inclusive and give you a stage. And then later on, he was thinking, maybe it's not because I'm a good writer. Maybe it's just a trend or sympathy or charity. And and so I think he's become increasingly careful in, in what he writes to almost to the stage of, you know, paralysis of, of his writing. Hmm. Well, I mean, you did you did a whole series on on Arab Lit about the way that uh, where you had interviews with 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 Syrian writers who talking about the way they felt kind of pigeonholed by the pressure to tell particular stories and particularly stories about the 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 refugee experience and the the trip to Europe and and and, and so on and so forth and. And this kind of feeling of like uh, only a certain kind of story is expected from me. Right, exactly. So yeah, this was a section put together by Marie Oidoy and she interviewed nine different writers and artists. And and yes, overwhelmingly people, you know, they were expected to write in a very particular way and and to perform their writing in a very particular biographical way. Um, and I know Sema Yezbek has, has talked about this as well. Being at an event and wanting to talk about your the aesthetic aspects of your writing as anyone would and being constantly brought back to this identity and representing this identity, becoming the face of um, you, you know the Syrian revolution. And I think Rami was also turned into this sort of, turned into an object, you know, turned into an icon, asked to sort of represent the Syrian revolution constantly rather than himself and his writing and what is his writing doing? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that sounds entirely likely that that would happen. Um, And yet I think in this book, he, you know, he it takes a number of surprising turns and i and i don't think so much that he's like purposely writing against a particular set of expectations as he's just you know uh writing in a very like strong and original way um there's another passage that I really liked um, later later on, sort of towards the end of the book. I mean, there's a lot, actually, of passages in this book that I underlined and folded the page down and they're, 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 that you, you sort of want to – you reread more than once as poetry. Um, but mm. he has, a, he has a, a section towards the end called Leave Your Home and Build Another. Um, and maybe I'll just read the end of this. Um so he's talking about 
it starts out going back kills you. And then it's two and a half pages of describing various things that kill you. Um, and it ends, a child running from his innocent features kills you to become a hero. But heroism ends up killing him. It kills whatever can grow in a child who is playing to grow up. There is no hero on that land sown with injustice and war. There is no hero there except for death, standing victorious as it awaits your flesh. The spread out dirt of worms and intermittent wailing fades to silence. Eventually, you fade too. No one says your name anymore. A child sinking in the drowning sea of death kills you. A child born to be killed kills you. A child born to kill kills you. Yearning, love, family, light, age, God, homeland, and sea kill you. Earth, paradise, memories of old photos, morning's entourage, happiness's waste, and exile kill you. Revolution, women of death, and grandmother's stories kill you. Return kills you. Going back kills you. So kill them back. And I really like, I mean. It's a wonderful, (laughs) it's a wonderful ending. It's a wonderful ending. It's a sort of like literal linguistic inversion. There's a kind of playfulness there. Going back kills you, so kill them back. I don't know, you know. Right. And. And there's this, you know, there's a darkness, but a sort of fighting spirit there. And, um, and obviously, you know, it's, it's in the writing itself that he can find an out. uh, Right. Right. To all these potential deaths and, and, you know, and he also has this wonderful one where he talks about all the ways in which he almost died, like really almost died, like the complete happenstance by which he survived. Um, and, and it's only writing, I think, that, that allows you to kind of make sense of it and also acknowledge that there is no sense to it. Right, right. Yeah, and to acknowledge that all these stories that we tell, to to invert the stories that we tell, uh, that is why I did not die. If I had, I would have become a hero, but I don't find anything deserving in heroism. You know, the the sort of trope of the uh, of the person overcoming great adversity, and you know, the all these I think you know all these refugee stories, you know, the positive ones and the negative ones turning into these huge meta narratives of either the hero or or the great criminal you know of of him trying to find a space in there for for what is real to, right. to push against the, that uh, to push against the idea that you know some people you know that that there's a that there's a kind of story that justifies being a refugee or that right, makes right, it right. make sense or that shows how deserving that person is, or vice versa. Like you say, the 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 sort of terror story about the, you know, how that 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 shows how you should never let these people in. Like the the flip dark story that that right. other, you know, is told in in other places and other other venues. But but yes, and and none of these stories being true and all of them being not about the refugees themselves but about the 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 fears and projections and concerns of 
the people and the places where they're going more than anything else, or of all of us sort of witnessing this incredible, incredible, like phenomenon, the magnitude of which is sort of impossible to take in. I mean, like the Syrian refugee crisis alone, we're talking about millions of people, Mm. um, you know, pushed out of their country or moved around within their own country and I think that it's it scares everyone and how you react to that, whether you react to it by kind of sentimentalizing it and looking for to make a morality play out of it somewhere, or you react to it by turning your fear into like suspicion and right. blame. What scares us, I think, is like thinking of oneself in that position, which is so like overwhelming. Right. Well, because, you know, everything changed so quickly in Syria, not that there wasn't a dictatorship for for many years, but that things changed so rapidly of, you know, of uh, uprising uh, and then, you know, civil conflict, war, uh, people fleeing in, in all directions. To imagine, yes, oneself in this position of suddenly everything in one's life changing. And, and fleeing. Yeah, I think you n- probably need to imagine it in some way uh, or you need to push back against imagining it in some kind of simplistic way. Uh, who would you be in this scenario? Right, right. But you mentioned earlier um, the work of Samar Yazbek and... Um, I have just received her her latest book. I, I've just started it, but you, I think, you've already read it, right? And it's it's up. It just got an award, or is up for an award? Yeah, I, I well, I worked on it in a minor way. I was, <laughs> oh. I was the proofreader in the final final stages. Yes, <laughs> I, Mabruk. It, it, yes, it's you. You can credit me with the fact that the Arabic is not disconnected and backwards. Uh-huh. Um, uh, it, yes, it is up for a National Book Award in the translation category, which I think is a wonderful vindication of Samari Yazbek as, as a literary writer, not, you know, um, simply who, somebody who's conveying the Syrian, the Syrian story, somebody who can be, you know, be your informant about what is happening in Syria. Because I think, you know, there was... In 2010, she was selected for this, you know, whatever somewhat controversial, and we can poke holes in it some other time, this list called the Beirut 39, which was um, 39 Arab authors writing in different languages around the world who were, you know, considering the most promising uh, authors under 40. And, And she, you know, she was a very accomplished novelist, short story writer, um, script writer, TV drama, journalist. Uh, she did many different things, uh, many different forms of literary work. A- and I think she is a very inventive, interesting writer. Uh, but after 2011, I think she was very much pressured to uh, to write. Ne- you know, I think she... It, in part, she, she of course she wanted to write and to communicate about Syria, but also she is a literary writer, and and I you know the the drumbeat of constantly being on these panels and constantly being asked not about your your writing even in in a space that's meant to be about writing, but about 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 Syria, um, about 
political events, um, you know, and the awards that many of the, these awards that she won uh, for International Writer of Courage and um, and these, but I do think that this book that's out now, which is translated as Planet of Clay, it, it was a finalist for the Prix Femina in Gelero Osman's translation, and it's a it's on the shortlist for the National Book Award in the translation category. And I do think it's um, a powerful work of literature. Um, yeah, I mean, I've only read the the very beginning, um, and in Arabic, it's called the Walker. El Masha, yeah, the, yeah, the female, the female Walker. <laughs> and it's um, and it's translated. Is it Larry Price? It is Larry, and it's a beautiful translation. Um, and it's out as Planet of Clay in English, um, and it follow, but it follows this this girl, um, Rima, who can't stop walking. And in her childhood, she's sort of tied up by her wrist. Uh, her mother has to keep her tied up, otherwise she'll just go, you know, wandering off. Um, and she has a lovely relationship with her her brother, but sometimes, so her mother, who's a who works as a cleaner, she sometimes has, you know, leaves her in the library of this school uh, tied up. And this is where she she develops this sort of, she's a, a character who has this sort of unspecified, I don't know if you'd call it mental disability or, um, but. I mean, uh, other people say of her, ina- no, inaccurately, I think, but like that she's crazy in the story. I mean, that's right, how people right, simplistically, right. Um, de- you know, describe her. And it's clear that she's not, she's the narrator of the story. Um, and yeah, this but, is, yes, uh, this is her book. Um, yeah, so she's aware that people call her this. I don't think she's, you know, it, it doesn't, doesn't limb her in, you know, she's kind of something of a, like a holy fool character. Um, she doesn't get the, the, the ordinary ways in which people are, you know, shitty and petty and small. She comes at the world with this fresh perspective, you know, the little princess sort of the guiding star of the, of the book in a really, it's a, you know, uh, it will offend many people, but little prince is not a favorite book of mine, but but I thought it I was neither. really lovely. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> I thought it was really lovely how this, among other intertexts, you know, it showed her childish continued engagement with the world and showed us, yeah, this in a very sometimes terrifying way. She has this weird synesthesia where she, you know, um, Sounds are purple and smells are, um, you know, loud, uh, mm. but also, you know, very touching relationships where she doesn't, you know, ever quite understand what's going on. Um, or you just get that sort of vision of things where because she's, because she's processing everything, like her description of a checkpoint, instead right. of just saying it's a checkpoint describes all the people who are there and the way the people who are reacting to it are like, and you get a more vivid picture of how a, a checkpoint is actually works, what happens there, because she doesn't have a preconceived notion of what a checkpoint is. So she just, she kind of like breaks it all down and describes every little detail. 
um, with these kind of naive eyes a bit. Yes, um, and the, and the same is true of, of everything: uh, bombing, um, uh, waking up in the hospital. Everything she is describing it as if no human being you uh, as if you are also naive, she, uh, as if all these things are totally new, a- and it does make you see them freshly. The checkpoint scene is terrifying. <laughs> That's honestly as far as I got. Is I just I just got the book recently and I started and I feel like something really bad is going to happen at the checkpoint, and so I well, don't want to go um, any further. <laughs> um, I have a real feeling of dread about that scene. Um, yeah, I can't promise you a happy ending. Yeah, I bet you can't. Yeah. Um, but just to get back to it, but you feel like um, that the role that Samara Yazbek took on of kind of like, because she was a, you know, enthusiastic participant in the uprisings in Syria. And then she sort of became someone who provided testimony about them to the outside world too. Like, and she has this book called, I think the crossing my journey to the shattered heart of Syria, which is about how she multiple clandestine trips back and so on. Um, My understanding is that, that she wanted that to be a, a novel, but that foreign publishers sort of pressed her into writing it as a as a work of nonfiction. Um, and, and I, I know she has mentioned many times and, uh, Yasmina, her agent has also mentioned that she's just exhausted by being pressed into this position of being representative of a country in an uprising rather than being a person and a writer. Right. I imagine that it's, I mean, I imagine at the same time that she has wanted to do some of this in the sense of like, she wants people to be aware of what's happened there. She has, you know, she talks about friends of hers in in interviews and things that have happened to them and so on and so forth. But then the demands on you to like constantly and only be that become so exhausting. And then probably also the sense that no matter how much you spread the truth, it doesn't alter what's actually, it doesn't alter the trajectory of things, um, may also be very discouraging. Right. I think, you know, if, unless I'm remembering other work by Rami Elashik, I think that that, you know, the, your words not changing anything is also something that appears in, in that series of texts. Like, why are you writing? Well, yeah, this is a big question, I think, about, I mean, (laughs) actually about all writing. So, (laughs) but I was going to say, like, a lot of the writing that, uh, whether you're documenting sort of atrocities or, you know, historical tragedies, or a lot of the writing that tells the story of refugees, which is almost like a genre of writing now. I mean, it's... Mm. I think that question comes up in a particular way. The question of what is your writing doing and is it doing what it wants to do, I think comes up in a particularly pointed way when the stories you're telling are the stories of the real suffering of people, right? Like, Right, right. I mean, because, because then you get into – yeah, then you get into the question of like how you're 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 processing 
pain and real historical pain into art in some way or another. And, and, and what is that accomplishing? Uh, where I think like if your subject matter is not so uh, serious, uh, the question is always there. What is writing to? What's the point? But right. it's sort of less, you know, pointed or urgent maybe. Um, and Right. And I think probably m- maybe more more than anyone else in the current moment, Syrian authors find their work instrumentalized in, I think, simplistic ways when it, you know, rather than a complex looking at what is writing for, what is writing. Um, yeah. And so, so I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about Yazbek's book. So her, so, so the story, her narrator becomes separated and alone and then she does move across the country? Is that what happens to her? Yeah. So she, um, you know, she's internally displaced. And uh, I, you know, don't want to spoil anything from you, but yes, she is separated from from this tether that keeps her tied to her mother. And, but she's, um, and various people in her life die and she really needs to rely on herself. And as it turns out, maybe, you know, maybe she, uh, maybe she doesn't quite have the resources in order to survive in this environment. But yes, she keeps walking, uh, you know, as the original title is Walker. She's, she keeps, keeps on moving, keeps on Mm. trying to find something, trying to connect to others. She has all kinds of these beautiful, naive relationships, uh, that sort of, you know, subvert what could be, you know, a crush on an, an older guy or, even her her extremely naive relationship with her brothers they're all these lovely relationships even with you know people who tie her to things in order to keep her from wandering um other other refugees who don't want to share their resources with her you know the all internal refugees um and it, and the and you know it it sort of narrows at the end her life becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and the book sort of closes around you a bit claustrophobically you know in it in telling both this very specific story about this specific character in this specific conflict and also an intensely human story about what it takes to survive and who can't survive hmm as as you were as you you said something as you were describing just now about um, people's desire to to move and to travel like regardless of whether they're refugees or not and and this and this character who has this impulse to move from the beginning that's sort of her defining characteristic is to have her brain in her feet as she says and. And have this impulse to move. And there's a line in, in Rami al-Ashik's book where he says, even when we have a homeland, we travel, afraid, cold, in love, and searching. We travel because travel is part of our instinct for life. Yes, yes. I mean, I thought that this this particular character, she always wanted to move. She always wanted to get out from the, the, the binds that would keep you, your life small. Uh, and then, yes, she runs into this 
her life changes so dramatically when as she walks, as she moves, she, you know, she runs into these impossible situations. Hmm. But yes, yeah, I mean, in part, this sort of overarching sort of refugee narrative is that people were in their homes, they wanted to stay in their homes forever. You know, the positive refugee story is, and then they were absolutely forced to go. Nobody would leave their home unless they were forced to. So, you know, and it's, you know, it's a way of um, requesting people's empathy, which is totally understandable. But yes, people always like to move it's it's a way of discovering new things right and and also the idea that 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 freedom you know is only granted to a few and that you have to have had your life destroyed before you can avail yourself of the freedom to go somewhere else and be someone else and that's very much you know Part yeah, that's absolutely the, the case definition. in this in this book, right? Because yes, her her tie that that holds her down, that keeps her her tied, it is is shattered when well something you know terrible happens to her mother, who she's been you know hooked to, and then then she's let loose to to follow her feet at least for a while, and to and to and to go back to the point that you were making also about what's the point of writing these stories? Like this question that comes up about, you know, um, how much can writing about uh, the, this, I don't know, about refugee, because you're not writing about the refugee situation. Every, every, every novel is a particular novel with a particular set of characters, but what gets thrown on it is this, this responsibility to represent an entire situation, an entire issue. Another book that I really enjoyed that I read recently that that also is is set in on one of the Greek islands where most of the refugees landing are Syrian refugees in recent years um, is uh, Rabi Alamedin's The Wrong End of the Telescope. Mm. And he makes this quite explicit by having... So the narrator is a Lebanese-American doctor i think she's a doctor uh, um, and a trans woman and there's an alter ego for the writer uh who she addresses in the book it's got you know as a lot of his fiction does i think like sort of right some some meta complexities it's it's not a it's just he sort of puts himself into the story as a writer who his narrator is talking to it works um, mm. and it, and it allows the, so at one point the narrator says to this writer, there comes up multiple times, like, what are you doing on Lesbos, you know, gathering material for this book about refugees? Like, um, it says, did you believe that writing about the experience would help you understand what happened? You still cling to romantic notions about writing, that you'll be able to figure things out, that you will understand life as if life is understandable, as if art is understandable. When has writing explained anything to you? Writing does not force coherence onto a discordant narrative. Mm. And there's multiple reflections like that on like, what are you trying to do by, by, try, by writing this story? Um, 
Right, because so the first two books we talked about were uh, Rami and and Samars were both written by Syrians, and Rabi al Medin is as his characters are Lebanese American. Right, and he but he has had the personal experience. He has gone and spent time and worked and volunteered in refugee camps, which is what this book mostly describes: is people coming from the West, although a lot of them are. Arab Americans or or from from other parts of the world and you know uh this sort of ragtag group of volunteers some of whom know each other and some of whom don't who are on the Greek island interacting with all these refugees and one of the ways I think he deals with this question of a narrative that doesn't make sense is that the book is very fragmented in a way that I think works really well. It's like got a lot of little chapters and some of them are total digressions from the ones that precede them. Um, so there'll be a story set on the island and then a backstory and then an anecdote about a character and then how these two characters met and then this thing that happened to them back in the 70s and then something that's happening now. And it all comes together quite nicely and each chapter has a kind of funny, punchy title. Um, and I really do think the whole has a narrative um, harmony and point, but it's very like digressive and sort of like shoots off in a lot of different directions. And I think acknowledging the kind of messiness of this of this story and not imposing a very coherent narrative is mm. what is is something that he does to try and it's very, it's like, it's very, it feels like full of stories that he collected, like in these camps, talking to people or that he, you know, maybe some of them are made up, some of them are real, but it's like got this real kind of like storytelling quality, which is something that I really enjoy of just like chock full of, you know, anecdotes and exchanges and, and scenes and, you know, the way someone would sit down and kind of pour out a whole bag of stuff that happened to them. Right, um, right. Yeah, his previous novel, The Angel of History, which is in some ways a sort of a novel of, of the AIDS crisis, uh, is also similarly fragmented. I think, you know, also um, sort of an inexplicable and enraging tragedy that he, that spins out in a, thousands of different storytelling directions. I was very impressed. It's the first book of his that I've read. Mm. Um, and I was really impressed with the way I think he makes something very hard look very easy because this kind of storytelling strikes me as very complex to pull off. Yeah, and it definitely. It's, and it's very, like, it just flows. Like, I really found myself picking the book up, like, wanting to see what happened next. Um, it, it's very, it's very enjoy. And also that's the thing is it's a story about, I mean, about refugees and people helping them that is that is somehow not that sad because mm. there's humor in it. There's surprises in it. You know, he's not trying to like package the sadness away. There's that too. But it dares to be light and funny also, um, which I really appreciated because obviously that's, you know, always part of people like whether it's the volunteers or it's the refugees, like everybody isn't going around always, you know, the people are falling in love. They're having fights, you know, they're making fun of each other. Um, they're making friendship, like stuff is just normal stuff is happening too. 
Right. So I thought that was very nice. If you want, I'll read a tiny excerpt um, that kind of it, it, one of like many scenes that I think gives a flavor of it. Yes, please. Okay. Newly arrived families trudged uphill, carrying their belongings, pulling rolling suitcases, their voices submerged in the hullabaloo of conversations among the volunteers, the tap-tap of hard soles on harder concrete, the bustle of movement. A Syrian family ascended toward us, mother, father, three kids, the eldest a boy of perhaps 12, his face a picture of glacial determination. A large group of young volunteers in neon yellow vests walked next to them, boisterous and unselfconscious. One of them, a blonde in her early 20s, screamed. Everyone stopped. She screamed again, pointing at the sky. Oh my God, oh my God. She screamed once more before she was able to form an actual sentence. Look, it's a rainbow, she yelled. (laughs) Sorry. That's okay. She tried to engage my Iraqi girl, kept pointing at the far sky, spoke louder in English to make herself understood. But my girl wanted nothing to do with her, wrapping her arms around my waist, clinging roughly. As the Syrian family reached us, I was able to hear what they were talking about. She's excited because she saw a rainbow, the father said. The mother shook her head. The 12-year-old boy said in a quiet voice, not realizing that I spoke his English, in, sorry, that I spoke his language, she should shove that rainbow up her ass. The father <laughs> snickered. The mother smacked the back of his head, not violently, for they were both carrying heavy loads. So you laughed twice during that. <laughs> like, and that's just like one scene. I mean, he also does a lot of stuff between languages like this because the narrator can access all the languages being spoken. There's a mm. lot of pretty good, like, you know, um, humor or sarcasm done by being able to hear what people are saying in different languages to and about each other. Um and of course, you know, like you see, so there's these kind of silly young volunteers, although they're not like what I also find about the book is it's it's forgiving almost of of everyone, like the people who are there who are egotistical, who are taking selfies of themselves, who aren't noticing, who are, you know, ignorant, like they're called out for that. But that's not the focus of the book. The focus of the book isn't to condemn. And there's a lot of other human qualities in circulation there's a lot of kindness in the story mm. too which i just I, I i found great you know i mean and there's some really funny like the syrian characters are allowed to be like everything from good to bad you know i mean and grumpy and you know dishonest sometimes like just like everybody else right um, Right, and able to tell someone to shove the rainbow up their ass. Which <laughs> right, right. It's a really fantastic as, line. As you might if you're like, tr- you know, God knows how where you've come from and you're pulling your suitcases up some Greek islands in the middle of winter and there's these like, you know, volunteers who are there on a couple weeks, you know, adventure. Right, right. But But again, like I said, like, you know, 
it's comic but relief. But it's not. That's not. A, but that's not. It's not unkind. None of it. Well, you know, saying right. under your breath, sho- shove a rainbow up your ass, and the wife sort of gently smacking her husband uh, on the back of the head as you do. Honestly, her son. Her son. Oh, her son. She's <laughs> okay. Sorry, I thought she was right. uh, uh, smacking her husband for a snickering. But uh, yes, gently smacking your your kid on the back of their head is. Uh, you know, I I think the whole thing is. It's lovely. I don't. I, I don't resent the woman for saying, "Oh, look, a rainbow." Um, she, she just is who she is at that time in her life, right? Right. right. She's maybe silly, but okay. You know, silly is not the worst thing a person can be. It's it's definitely not. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So I I really I really enjoyed that, um, and I found it surprising, which for me is really a quality that. More, I, I I look for um, in when as a reader like that I just don't know the things don't go as I expect them is one of my greatest sources of pleasure. Not in like a forced you know over the over the top way, but right when I really when I can't predict. Um, yeah, when you're reading a story that you haven't read before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you get to be old like us. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, there's a lot of stories that I read or watch on television where I can predict like 100% what's going to happen. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's yeah, so, so much I'm... stuff that is so formulaic and you can mm. see it a mile away. Right. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to reading this now. Mm. And and you're also you're working with someone who's also written a, a young adult novel that is about the experience of internal displacement in Syria. Is that right? Yes. So Haya Salas, um, uh, well, I'm I'm calling it Wild Poppies. Is she's Jordanian, and she has written um, a, a young adult novel um, that won the Etisalat Prize for Arabic children's literature in the YA category last year in 2020. And I hadn't read it, um, I guess, because I, I hadn't traveled to, to that, to the, to the Sharjah book fair in 2020, you know, it was sort of still COVID. I didn't go this year either. Um, which is usually where I, I pick up these, um, new YA books. And then the publisher had reached out to me and, and asked if I'd be interested, and she just sent it a PDF. And as I read it, I found myself unable to put it down, and which is saying something about a PDF because normally I find a PDF <laughs> ten, ten times harder to read. But <laughs> you're like out of my sight, right? Um, and it basically it's told in two voices, and and it's all about the characters. It's all about how much you care about these characters, and they are so flawed which is so which is a wonderful thing both for you know the complexity of the, the narrative and also you know for YA for for telling a story about Syria there's fifth, half of it is 15 year old Omar and he's the older he's the oldest sibling in this family um that has been displaced by by war and then half of it is his 12 year old brother Sufyan and both of them are so Omar is Omar is like um, he's a bit he's a bookish guy he's a bit little bit um, 
I don't know. He, you know, he 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 has trouble taking responsibility for the family. He's a little bit I don't know, cowardly, isn't the right word. I mean, surely I would be a thousand times more, but um, uh, you know, unwilling to sort of take action in this extremely difficult, challenging environment. His younger brother, Sufyan, is the opposite. He's like, you know, he was always the overly courageous one, um, and. He's trying to start businesses, and he, you know, he finds himself in. Uh, he finds himself in search of money, and because his family is is starving, and the and the they're living a bunch of relatives crammed together in this house in the countryside. Nobody wants to share with each other. Every small family in their room is looking out for themselves. Um, so Sufyan finds himself in with, um, you know, basically a militia. Um, being brainwashed and, and taken into the army, and the family is all fragmented and separated, um, and they all find themselves off in in different places. And you meet other kids and other teens, and and each of them develops in, in the course of this uh, novel. And each of them has to sort of face things that they don't like about themselves, um, and struggle to to grow and as they also try to find each other again, where is the mother and the youngest, Freya, and uh, where is Omar and where is Sufyan? And, and you know, one, one of the things that I find bearable about spending so much time with a YA novel is that they do find each other in the end. Um, I, I've I've gotten some pushback from publishers in English who are all, I mean, several are have, expressed interest in this um in this novel which is mm-hmm. really beautifully told but that you know frightened that it's too dark for um for a YA novel uh well what age do you imagine is the ideal reader i would say 14 plus i mean or you can be my age and and <laughs> The reviews, there were reviews of it in the Arabic press, and they were like, yes, it's a young adult novel in the sense that it's all kids and sort of coming of age in this, under these terrible uh, circumstances. But it's also just a very humane and human novel. So you can read it uh, at any age, but uh, yeah, I probably would not, under 14, I would not recommend it. Well, yeah. I mean, starting at 14, though, I feel like the distinction almost evaporates. I mean, you can, you can, they can read certainly dark and serious subject matter (laughs) because they can read the same things. Weren't you reading quote unquote adult books when you were a teenager? Sure. I was only, I I don't think I knew about YA when I was a teenager. Yeah. I started reading YA as an adult. Um, Yeah. I was reading, I was obsessed with James Baldwin, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, uh, when I was 14 plus. And so when you're um, pitching this story to publishers, how much like framing do you have to do for them? I mean, like, you know, how do you, I don't know, how do you present it? So, so I, I, I mean, I, uh, I actually have my my pitch letter printed out next to me, but uh, I don't give it that much framing in terms of what's going on in Syria right now. I just, I guess I assume that people have 
some notion. Um, I explain to them what the Etisalat Prize, I spend more time explaining what the Etisalat Prize for Arabic children's literature is and its significance versus what's happening in, in Syria. I, you know, explain that um, Sufyan is sort of semi, you know, kidnapped, half brainwashed, ends up as a, he, he does end up, I think this is a very, this is a somewhat difficult thing for, um, will be a difficult thing for any English language publisher who eventually decides to sign it. Um, or the multiple ones Sufyan that are going to get into a, f- a bidding war over it, Marsha, come on. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Uh, um, Sufyan does become a fighter and, um, it, we don't focus on that, but we know that he's killed people. And at the end, he's attempting to sort of get get the drugs out of his system that he's been um, that he's been using, and also to come to grips with the fact that he's killed people. He is a, you know, as a as a twelve year old who was a soldier, and we're asked to sympathize with him and to understand him and the other teenagers who are pressed into fighting. So I think that's a difficult thing for people um, that we're asked to both sympathize with Omar, who is this, you know, he could be, you know, a perfect refugee, definitely never harms anybody. Um, You know, he has trouble taking responsibility for his family after his father has died and his mother is ill. But he he never harms. I can't, you know, he doesn't even want to hurt bugs or anything. Um. But we're also asked to sympathize with Sufyan, who half of the story is his story, too. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I mean, I think a 12-year-old who's fought in a war does deserve our sympathy. And yeah. not, to be, not, to be ju- not to be judged as, certainly not to be judged as, as somehow irredeemable or... Uh, but um yeah right and so we and we follow him in his whole trajectory he of course he initially doesn't want to take part in this but they you know gradually convince him that this is the only way and that everyone else is against him and his whole family has been killed they say um and he is alone there with these other kids um taken and separated from his family so yeah he he is a um a sympathetic figure as well Really, all the kids are. The adults, you know, much less so. <laughs> we adults generally don't come off very well. Yeah, yeah. There's quite a few ch- There's quite a few children also in the, in Alamedin's account of the, of the camp. And it's true that the kids who are just running around trying to see how many people they can get to, like, buy them cookies at the canteen and, you know, <laughs> like... Right. They don't. They don't have too much to be held accountable for. Um, but uh, well, I hope that this story. I, I really hope that this story does make it into into English. I think it sounds like, you know, there's such a like trend for like kind of fake, prettified teenage war stuff, like The Hunger Games. This is kind of right. This is kind of right. the real the real deal actually and much more complex and interesting than that right and uh, and also most of the stories that have either been written 
originally, well, written originally in English or translated from European languages, from from German or French or Italian, about Syrian, uh, about Syrians post 2011 have been refugee stories about coming to, about traveling from Syria to Europe or appearing in Europe and who are, who are they there? Um, this is a very, this is a different story. Uh, this is about right, because, these characters. Because those stories are so often meant to like educate the right. Western reader or quote unquote humanize the refugee um and and so the orientation of the stories is very obvious, right? And often the other characters around uh, the sort of cipher for the supposed reader are the sort of the foreground of the story. The the other characters in the Western country become you know a focus of well, how do you deal with these characters of, of refugees? Whereas this is entirely set in in Syria among Syrian characters, although, you know, written by a Jordanian, but I think with tremendous sympathy and uh, uh, in investing these characters with, you know, heart and life and, and development and arc. And there's so many more of these stories to tell. I mean, like, there, you know, the, the, there's a generation of stories with, with, that have ended the, mm. and including the one in which so many Syrians have been pushed to go back now. Um, and, and, and what's happening right. oh, God. and what's happening there. And then like all the different, incredibly different situations in which they have found themselves in different countries and different routes. And I mean, there is absolutely no single, single narrative. Um, but um, but we'll we'll include uh, links to all of these um, all of these works in the show notes and, and some press coverage of them. Um, is there something that you want to go out on read to go out on? Okay, cool. I do actually. I do. I want to go out to return to Rami Al Ashak, um, um, a poem of his translated by Levi Thompson. Uh, it's untitled. And it uh, appeared in the journal Transference, and it is it is is a, a poem of his about poetry. I pity those miserable poets. I pity those miserable poets who waste their time searching for some image or other, kill their fathers, and then go with them to the gardens and bury them in a wooden box that's come to be called a bookshelf. I pity them, the ones who use letters they didn't create, paper they didn't make, pens that came to them from far-off countries, made by people who didn't read poetry in foreign languages. I pity them. They die one after the other without writing the final poem. They make their living on the pain of others and their joys. They collect laughs from here, tears from there, love stories and elegies so they can make from them a dry hunk of bread. I pity them because they think they are prophets, even though they are just normal people. They discovered the lie of prophecy and told the lie again. I pity those poets who grasp hold of a mother's breasts and make a cloud out of them. They open a door for tomorrow to enter and today exits through it without returning. 
They look at a tree that doesn't look at them. They write about a war that doesn't write about them. They love cities that don't love them. They break fear's hand so it breaks their necks. They run towards everything so everything runs from them. I pity them so I... One day I tried to be a poet before making it to the poem's waist and stabbing it. <laughs> <laughs> 